Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest today for most of the hour, Washington Post business reporter Christopher Rowland, part of an investigative reporting team at the Post uh, looking into neglect at assisted living facilities across the country, including here in Iowa. That in just a moment, but we want to cover uh, with more details as they become available. Uh, The breaking news, uh, multiple people shot at the high school in Perry, Iowa this morning. IPR reporter Natalie Krebs is in Perry, joining us live. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Ben. What exactly is law enforcement willing to confirm at this point? They're not confirming a whole lot at this point, Ben. They say that there was an active shooter at about 7.37 this morning, so that was before school started. They're confirming there were multiple injuries, but we're not sure how many people or who they were, you know, uh, students or faculty were injured yet. Um, They do say that there's no longer a threat. It's not an active shooting situation, but we actually don't have any status on who the shooter is or what their status is yet. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you're seeing and hearing in, in the time that you've been there this morning. Um, obviously, a lot of police around this the smaller community, um, just you know, about 45 minutes outside of Des Moines. Uh, lots of law enforcement officials everywhere, and then again, just always the mood is just very, very sad here. You know, I think people are in shock. I was just at Casey's. You know, people are crying and. You're, you're very upset to have this kind of really, really disturbing incident happen in a community like this. Yeah, I see that um, no school there for the rest of the today, of course, but also for Friday. Counseling services available uh, at the public library for people in need in Perry. Um, and this uh, on the Facebook page of um, uh, the high school uh, there. But uh, what else can you tell us and, and when uh, would we expect to know more? Well, the I mean, the no official word from law enforcement officials on on the status of the shooter. However, the Associated Press is reporting that they heard from a law enforcement official out here that the shooter is dead. Um, that that's coming from the AP, and we're told by the Dallas County Sheriff there will be an update this afternoon on what is going on here in Perry. Okay, uh, thanks for now, Natalie Krebs on site in Perry, Iowa, the site of. Uh, a shooting at the high school in Perry. Multiple people shot. Uh, we're still confirming uh, the details as they become available. Natalie Krebs, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we'll have an update on this at the end of this hour as well. Um, and, of course, multiple news updates throughout the day here on IPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. A recent Washington Post investigation found a pattern of neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country, including here in Iowa. Since 2018, over roughly the past five years, more than 2,000 people have wandered away from assisted living and memory care facilities unnoticed or have been left unattended for hours outside. Nearly 100 have died. State inspectors frequently finding evidence of neglect. 
My guest for this portion of the program, Washington Post business reporter Christopher Rowland. He was part of the investigative reporting team at The Post. Christopher, welcome to our program. Hi, Ben. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us uh, toward the end of our conversation. want to make sure we'll highlight uh, guidance, what you've learned about uh, choosing uh, assisted living and nursing home facilities uh, for those listening or for a, a loved one. Important information there. Let's uh, keep that uh, for uh, the moment off to the side. Um, we want to remind our listeners this is a live conversation, so if you have questions about the regulation of assisted living and nursing home facilities, please join our conversation with Christopher. Uh, perhaps you have an experience to share that relates to our discussion about assisted living and nursing home facilities uh, and dementia. one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Start off, Christopher, by telling us what prompted this investigation by the Washington Post. Uh, so uh, we started um, at the beginning of the year uh, taking a look at um, uh, assisted living and memory care. Uh, it's been a very high-growth industry uh, for the last 20 years or so. And in the last 10 years, uh, 10 to 15 years, this, uh, this sort of new category of dementia care, which the industry calls memory care, has really um, come to dominate growth in the industry in terms of revenue and residents in those facilities. And what that means is that those are uh, residents who have some form of advanced uh, Alzheimer's disease or other cognitive impairment uh, where they uh, need to be kept safe uh, indoors uh, they have a number of needs of daily uh, living that they need assistance with, such as dressing and bathing and toileting. Uh, and uh, but what we uh, what prompted our review of this was the lack of federal regulation. Uh, there's no federal regulation of this industry at all, unlike nursing homes, which is heavily regulated by the federal government. And so what's uh, what people are left with is a patchwork of state laws, uh, state by state, it's uh, very irregular across the country. Some states have better rules than others. And, uh, and so, you know, our, our concern was that this, uh, we wanted to examine what the gaps were and where harm might be happening. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of very costly. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and so, so a lot of anecdotal evidence in news reports from across the country, but your your job was to, to put this all together, look for patterns, themes, and differences between states. That's right. It, uh, so it's never been done when you look at, uh, from a, a national perspective, uh, about quality of assisted living. Be, uh, for that very reason that uh, I mentioned, it's state by state. So there's no national database where uh, reporters or academics can do research on, you know, levels of harm uh, on a national level. So what we did was we selected uh, one category of really dangerous uh, uh, incidents, and that's uh, wandering deaths uh, or what are called elopements in the, uh, by the industry and by regulators. Uh, that's where someone with dementia gets outside or is left outside on a patio unattended or in a van um, and very, and these are very dangerous situations where you have someone who 
uh, may, is very confused, may not know, understand their surroundings. They don't know how much danger they're in. Uh, they have difficulty, you know, measuring pain or expressing pain or knowing if how cold it is or how hot it is. And, uh, you know, what we found was pretty disturbing um, nationwide evidence that this is a, a relatively common incident where people do go outside uh, unattended. Oftentimes they're found quickly, but a lot of times they're not. And sometimes they're brought home by the police. Sometimes they're brought home by passersby. Some neighbor or someone or a family member finds them down the road. Uh, but other times, uh, particularly in places uh, where it gets very cold or very hot, uh, people pass away. Um, they'll freeze to death or they literally will, uh, you know, um, suffer heat exhaustion and, and die out, outside the, door, uh, the safety of the facilities. Uh, so there, and we found about a hundred deaths uh, nationwide in the last five years. So, um, uh, really, quite disturbing pattern, and and a lot of commonality in how these things happen. And in just a moment, I'll have you recount um, a distressing uh, case um, that involved an, an Iowa uh, uh, woman. Uh, but but first, let's get more into the findings to understand the the scope of this problem nationwide. How did you go about your investigation? Well, because there was no national database to dig through, um, we had to create our own, essentially. And so uh, the, uh, the first thing we did was uh, go do a massive clip search, um, looking at media reports, local media reports, uh, reports of silver alerts that go out when someone's missing, uh, and um, culling through you know literally hundreds of newspaper reports and local media uh, to try to find when these things had been reported, when these incidents, it often makes the local news. It's uh, when someone dies in this manner uh, in every state. And um, and uh, as tragic as it is, uh, it tends to ma- make a small story and will uh, maybe last for a couple of days. If there's uh, some findings against the facility, you know, there might be another story weeks down the road. Um, so we built a database using those. But we realized we still weren't getting all the incidents that we needed. So the next uh, major step we took was we FOIA'd uh, all the states, uh, asking them for reports of this type of incident. And then we also downloaded uh, uh, 160,000 inspection reports of all assisted living facilities in states where the records were available to the public. So we were have some data people here at the Post who are able to uh, go in and download from those state government websites every single uh, inspection report and complaint report. And then from that 160,000, we did keyword searches uh, looking for um, these types of incidents. And so we found a number more. Uh, that's where we really found uh, the mother load of, of cases where people went outside but were not did not die because those were literally never make the news. Uh, so that's how we came up with our two thousand uh, number. That essentially almost every day in America this is happening in some facility somewhere, um, and you know we consider those near misses, uh, particularly if the weather's bad or if it's a busy on a busy highway and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so it was a really exhaustive uh, data project. Yes, uh, Christopher, we have to take a break in in less than a minute. But tell us quickly, uh, how long did this investigation at the Washington Post take, and how many were on your team? 
there was um, seven of us uh, reporters and uh, several editors, and it took us about um, six months, I'd say. Uh, we started around June, and uh, we uh, worked on it right through until um, beginning of December. Okay. Stay put, uh, please. Christopher Rowland joining us, Washington Post business reporter. Um, he's uh, part of a, an investigative reporting team at the Washington Post, uh, issuing a, an investigation, finding a pattern of neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country, including here in Iowa. We'll hear an Iowa case from Christopher when we return. Do you have questions? Do you have experiences that relate to our discussion? one 780 9100 River to River at iowapublicradio.org. More in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. We're back with more River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Christopher Rowland uh, in this live portion of our program. Washington Post business reporter, uh, he focuses his work on the health care economy's impacts on consumer finances, health, and safety. And uh, recently the Washington Post uh, found um, in its investigation a pattern of neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country, including here in Iowa. And as Christopher uh, was just recounting, uh, you know, this happens practically every day across the country in Iowa. And sadly, since 2018, roughly over the past five years, more than 2,000 people have wandered away from assisted living and memory care facilities, as they're known in the industry, unnoticed or have been left unattended for hours outside. Nearly 100 have died. Join our conversation with a relevant question, or perhaps you have an experience that relates to our discussion. one 780 9100 Email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, Christopher, tell us about the case uh, featured in your investigation of Lynn Stewart, uh, an Iowan. What happened to her while uh, a resident at Hawthorne Crossing, uh, that's an assisted living facility near Des Moines, that uh, uh, caters to people with dementia? Yeah, the uh, the case of Lynn Stewart is um, uh, is really fit the pattern of what we found uh, in other places across the country, uh, particularly in places where it's cold. So there's a real danger of getting outside there. So uh, Lynn Stewart was a 77-year-old woman um, with dementia. And, uh, you know, her family did a diligent search and found the facility that you mentioned. Uh, and she had been a resident there. Uh, and, you know, uh, the family felt good about having her there. They felt that she was uh, safe. Uh, they had alarms on her door of her apartment, uh, her unit, and they had alarms on the exterior doors leading outside. Uh, the staff seemed uh, kind and attentive. Um, and yet what happened was when uh, Lynn Stewart uh, vanished uh, on one evening in January of 2022, uh, the alarms on her door to her unit and the alarms uh, on the uh, leading outside 
uh, were ignored by the staff uh, and by uh, administrators of the facility. Uh, these would send automatic alarms to the iPads and the cell phones of the staff, and uh, they were not heard, they were not noticed, and uh, they didn't realize Lynn was missing until the next morning, and she was found um, outside on the ground, outside the exit door, uh, with ice on her body, um, very near death, and she died later at the hospital. Hmm. Uh, She had been outside for about nine hours, uh, and the low temperature that night outside Des Moines was minus 11 degrees. Hmm. Uh, it's a heartbreaking and tragic case. Um, and what, what, what was particularly stunning to us, uh, was, uh, how frequently this actually does happen across America and how this is a totally preventable death. Uh, it's, uh, it's due to inattention, um, understaffing and poor training at these facilities. And, uh, and you had, uh, meant some of these elements in that case as well. Yeah. And you pointed to the alarm here and you have a, this is a this is a theme as pointed out in this case with ignoring not hearing alarms something that you, you term in this article alarm fatigue. Talk about that. Yeah, so uh I don't know if you, you some of your listeners may be familiar with visiting uh their loved ones in facilities uh where the, you know you do hear uh, a number of pinging sounds and alarms pretty frequently, mm-hmm. uh, with people pressing their call buttons at uh, so the nursing station, uh, doors opening and closing, um, uh, and uh, so unfortunately, what happens tends to happen, and it's not just in assisted living, but it also alarm fatigue is a phenomenon uh, in American hospitals as well that uh, people tend to become sort of uh, a accustomed to hearing those noises and don't always respond. Uh, obviously, when you're in a memory care unit, uh, the stakes are extremely high, and um, there's really no excuse not to respond. But nonetheless, uh, that's what happens. Uh, you also, would, you know, it points to understaffing, too, because if, a, if someone is busy, a staffer is busy with attending to another resident, and they're the only staffer on a, on a unit of, you know, 15 or 20 people, uh, and they hear an alarm, uh, they can't respond right away because they're busy. And so they may forget or they may turn off the alarm. Uh, again and again, we found that people would turn off alarms but would not fully investigate what had triggered the alarm. They wouldn't actually go outside and look to see if there was anybody outside. They might just see there was no one near the door and they would turn it off or they would peer out the window briefly, not see anybody and turn it off um, when in fact someone was outside uh, in trouble. Um, so, you know, in uh, in Lynn's case, there was uh, charges brought against the staffer who was on duty at the time. She was actually charged with murder by local authorities, uh, which uh, was then pled down to um, a lesser charge of uh, adult uh, abuse, and she received probation. But I think it's, uh, you know, a, an important point here is that uh, you know, the staffers are working in a broken system. Uh, this is a system that uh, treats the staffers like low, uh, uh, pays them very poorly. So they're low wage workers. It's considered a low skilled job, uh, despite the challenges of taking care of people with dementia, which is actually, uh, you know, is a fairly significantly challenging job. Um, 
and the you know they're the, they're poorly trained, low paid, and um, you know the result is uh, you know, oftentimes poor care and neglect. Christopher Rowland is with us live, Washington Post business reporter, talking about um, his investigative team's uh, work here, a recent Washington Post investigation, uh, finding a pattern of neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country. And as we just heard, including here in Iowa in the tragedy that he recounted of of Lynn Stewart in an assisted uh, living facility near Des Moines. Join us with your questions, your experiences that relate to our discussion. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Let's go to Nick in Clive. Thank you for waiting, Nick. Uh, tuned into this conversation. Uh, what do you have to add? Hey, of course. Yeah, Happy New Year, Ben. Um, and thank you. Chris, thank you to you and the folks at the Washington Post to putting together uh, this this type of information. Looking further into it, one question that I had. Um, revolves around the efficacy of GPS tracking for elderly people um, in these assisted living homes. And um, my wife had said, you know, what about air tags? You know, maybe it's not that simple, but I was curious if there would be a possibility to better use those type of tracking devices to know where um, those individuals are at at all times when they're in the care of the facility. Nick, thanks for the question from Clive. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question, and, and indeed, there are uh, devices that uh, facilities use to try to keep track of people. Um, they're called wander guards, and they'll uh, go on their ankle or wrist, uh, and um, and that can uh, do a couple things. It can trigger uh, an alarm of a door if they go through the uh, door that they shouldn't go through, um, and then that, but also uh, can uh, help authorities find them if they're outside. Uh, uh, you know, GPS and air tags uh, for longer distance elopements uh, are not widely in use, I don't believe. Um, but, uh, you know, what? even that's not, even these types of devices are not fail safe because we have, fi- we did find cases, uh, quite a number of them where uh, wander guards didn't work or they, uh, the resident managed to take it off somehow or disable it. Um, or, uh, you know, it didn't trigger a door when it was should have, uh, cause the door wasn't uh, functioning properly. So, um, you know, it's not a fail safe, but it can definitely help. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that question from Clive, uh, from, uh, Nick, one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. This might be a good time, Christopher, to, to really talk about something I don't think a lot of people are aware of the difference, uh, between nursing homes and assisted living in so many ways in terms of regulation in terms of dementia care other care that is needed by elderly uh people there are there are big differences that you uh describe very well in this investigation that we need to know about yeah definitely um and also cost and who pays so uh you know, so nursing homes are uh federally regulated they are medical institutions they uh have uh uh registered nurse staffing uh, mandated. Um, the government collects reams and reams of data from them about outcomes and health, health uh, of, the, of the residents. Um, they monitor basically everything that happens in a nursing home. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the 
people go into nursing home have a high level of needs. Uh, they tend to, you know, have they have more severe bed sore risks. Uh, they have more uh, in greater intensity of fall risk. Um, they may have, uh, you know, uh, extremely limited mobility, not be able to get up at all. Um, and they might have really intensive medication needs as well. Um, uh, and maybe perhaps even oxygen. Uh, and, you know, as you know, as well, nursing homes are for rehab after hospital stays. Uh, so and uh, Medicaid uh, tends to pay for mo- uh, a majority of long term care stays in nursing homes. And assisted living, assisted living was marketed beginning in the 90s as uh, more of a, an option, a, a sort of healthcare light option, if you will, um, with more luxurious uh, kind of lobbies and hallways uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, nicer furniture and appointments, kind of the goal, uh, the marketers tried to make it seem more comfortable, um, you know, uh, you know, Marriott hotels actually got into the business of, of, of assisted living for a while because it was seen as kind of a hotel like setting almost, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, people have their own units, they have more autonomy, uh, they can come and go, uh, unless they have dementia or have other limited, uh, limitations, um, uh, and, uh, but the, the thing also is, is that, um, most of the care there is paid by the families. So people are paying out of pocket. Um, uh, they're paying anywhere from 5,000 to 9,000 or even $10,000 a month, uh, to stay in assisted living. Um, they're tapping their home equity, uh, they're tapping their 401ks, their retirement accounts, uh, and draining them, uh, while they stay in these facilities, uh, for an average of two years. Um, there's, there's limits on what kind of healthcare can be provided in an assisted living and memory care units. Uh, they can't, there's, uh, if the bed sore becomes, uh, above a stage two, then they're, um, by law, most states are required to go to a nursing home. Uh, you know, there's, um, uh, limits on the types of drugs that can be administered. You can't, uh, I believe IV drugs are really more appropriate for nursing homes, not for assisted living. Because if you don't have, and uh, there's in most states, you don't have to have a nurse on on scene. Uh, there's uh, there there's an administrator. There's sort of a uh, overall clinical supervisor, but is not necessarily a nurse. And the and the training for the aides uh, who take care of the people, the frontline caregivers, uh, is pretty minimal compared to the training that the federal government requires for the aides in a nursing home. Christopher, it sounds like one of the takeaways here is is really the marketing of assisted living that has been taking place over the last few years, as you've, as you've been describing. Uh, and it you know it occurs to me, and I'm sure you've heard it, and our listeners have heard it many times. People will uh, announce they're moving into an assisted living facility, and there is uh, they have no problem announcing that. And that that doesn't happen in the case of um, you know uh, nursing homes. There is a a, a different feeling about uh, moving to a nursing home than assisted living. But what you're saying is a nursing home may actually financially, in terms of financial and uh, reasons and regulation and oversight, nursing home, especially in the cases uh, of uh, memory care or dementia, may be the better option. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a you know, uh, there's kind of a negative stigma about nursing homes in the United States. Uh, and um, people see them as, you know, medical institutions. Uh, there's a very kind of negative vibe among people. 
when they're shopping for long-term care and whether, you know, they're concerned that a nursing home, they're just going to be kind of invalids and they won't have any life and they'll, uh, you know, be stuck in bed or a wheelchair. And, you know, I mean, it's actually, that's probably unfair. I mean, nursing homes can be pretty nice and they can have, provide really good care. Quality is really kind of varies a lot and other places are not that great. Um, and some of the nursing homes, you know, bad reputation is definitely deserved. I mean, we've all, you know, seen the horror stories over many decades, but um, so, you know, in a, in a sense, the assisted living operators and marketers kind of took advantage of that negative stigma of nursing homes uh, by, you know, uh, positioning assisted living as, you know, a comfortable, more home-like uh, environment with, uh, you know, where you have more autonomy and it's much more like your home and it's not medical. But the problem is, is that um, as these, uh, as time has gone on, uh, the level of healthcare that's needed by people in assisted living continues to increase. Uh, what, we, what they call in healthcare, the level of acuity. You have people, uh, particularly as there's more and more people with dementia living in these facilities. And now with the last 10 years of the advent of, you know, segregated memory care units where everyone in that unit has dementia, you have people with significant, significant behavioral and healthcare needs uh, that in many instances, these assisted living facilities are not well equipped to deal with. And so you have this kind of conflict between, you know, the marketing, which is, you know, promising to keep people safe in a home-like environment, uh, and yet the reality of a poorly regulated, lightly regulated, you know, uh, facility with, you know, um, low-paid, untrained staff taking care of people with, you know, significant amounts of of, of healthcare and behavioral needs. And so, uh, so that's kind of the backdrop of the business here. And the, the other interesting thing about it is that um, private equity and real estate investment trusts have really swarmed into the uh, assisted living space. And so, you know, a lot of the money that you're paying, your $8,000 a month or so, uh, is going out of the building and into the pockets of real estate investors. Uh, which a lot of people don't understand. Uh, they think that those high costs are because of the care. It's not necessarily the case. The high costs are because uh, this is a high budget, high dollar real estate play by, you know, in mostly out of town investors. Christopher Rowland is with us. He'll be back after a short break. Washington Post business reporter, part of a team behind a recent Washington Post investigation, finding a pattern of neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country uh, and here in in Iowa. Uh, Join us with your questions, your experiences that relate to this discussion. 1-866-780-9100. Also, when we come back, um, I want to get Christopher's read on the questions that we should ask before choosing an assisted living uh, facility when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. 
With more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Christopher Rowland with us, Washington Post business reporter, part of a team behind a recent Washington Post investigation, finding a pattern of neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country. Uh, He recounted one case, uh, um, a tragedy here in Iowa at an assisted living facility near Des Moines. Let's get to that point before... um, our time runs out, uh, Christopher. What can you tell us about, uh, and, and you have companion pieces for this investigation, really a, a thorough job here in in um, all kinds of um, uh, companion pieces, uh, questions to ask, we'll get to that, the understaffing, uh, guidance, state regulation, and you have a state-by-state breakdown. So tell us, uh, how does Iowa compare uh, in the way it regulates these facilities to other states? Uh, so Iowa uh, is uh, um, is good in some respects, but not so good in other respects. Um, so only so we we took we decided to measure every single state on three criteria. Uh, do they have dementia? Is dementia care retraining required? And is um, uh, are there mandatory staff ratios, staff to resident ratios? And is there a good website where the public can uh, look up complaints and inspection reports of a facility? Uh, so uh, Iowa does kind of gets uh, like a one and a half on this scale of three here. Um, uh, it does require uh, two hours of dementia care training uh, and in a special memory care units, an additional six hours of dementia care training. So that's okay. It's pretty good. It's not as good as... Uh, some other states that have 12 or even up to 20 uh, hours of dementia care training, but it's a lot better than a lot of states which have zero. Um, uh, Iowa has uh, a website where you can look up complaints and the results of inspections. And I can tell you uh, by uh, checking it out myself, it's pretty, it's not that bad. It's, it's pretty good to use compared to some. Some states have really uh, horribly designed websites that are most virtually impossible to use for the general public. Um, where Iowa uh, uh, falls short on this metric that we used is there's no mandated staff ratios uh, in uh, Iowa assisted living and, and memory care. So uh, if, um, you know, so there could be one staffer for 20 people, uh, which is, you know, probably pretty common. It's common throughout the industry, even up to even as many one staffer overnight on overnight shifts and weekends and holidays, uh, uh, it's off not uncommon to have one staffer for two dozen people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Iowa stacks up pretty, you know, in the middle of the pack, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I imagine workforce shortage across the country has really affected that as well, if you don't have requirements, especially. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, staffing has been uh, in a crisis situation, particularly since the pandemic, uh, throughout uh, health care. Uh, and long-term care in particular, because the jobs pay so poorly and because it's really hard work. I mean, if you're making 15 bucks an hour uh, to take care of, you know, uh, the emotional needs of of a a patient with dementia um, uh, who requires, you know, a great deal of of kindness and understanding and patience, uh, and then also caring for all the uh, bathing and clothing and helping feed that person. That's a really hard job. You could go make the same amount of money as a barista at Starbucks. 
so, you know, the, the, the turnover in these facilities is extraordinary. I mean, people, they'll, they'll go into these jobs, they'll do the minimal training, but then they'll quit after a month because they can't take it. So, and, you know, it's a real problem retaining. So, you know, retention and turnover and low pay is, is really a, a, a major issue for these facilities. Final 10 minutes with Christopher Rowland of the Washington Post, uh, part of a team behind a Washington Post investigation, finding neglect for patients uh, with dementia at assisted living facilities across the country. Um, let's go back to the, it's very interesting that how you elucidated the difference between assisted living facilities and nursing homes. You also investigated what happens when uh, these assisted living facilities cost a lot of money, especially when you're in memory care, uh, dementia care. Uh, What happens when private money runs out? And this dovetails uh, into one of the key questions you need uh, to be asking uh, when you are selecting assisted living facility for you or a loved one. Uh, When that private money runs out, um, what, what did you find happens in, in a lot of cases? Yeah, that's uh, it's a real trap. So people need to go into this uh, with eyes wide open and really um, uh, be careful negotiators and really understand the contract uh, when they're um, signing um, and enrolling and, and moving someone into one of these facilities. Uh, oftentimes, as I said, you know, people will tap their home equity, they'll tap their 401k or their IRA uh, and uh, and you don't qualify for Medicaid in the United States until you're basically broke. You got to be have no money. Um, and but Medicaid will pay for long term care. It pays it. Uh, it's required to pay for long term care in nursing homes. And then in, and for as far as assisted livings, uh, all states have some sort of waiver program that allows uh, a limited number of beds for assisted living and memory care to be paid for by Medicaid. But not all facilities take Medicaid, and they're not required to take Medicaid like assisted nursing homes are. So once your private money runs out, uh, they can throw you out because they don't want to take Medicaid. They don't want to pay, take that lower cost, lower paying contract from the state Medicaid program. I actually covered that uh, phenomenon in Wisconsin where a lot of people were being thrown out of their uh, long-term care uh, assisted living facilities because uh, they they spent $250,000, all their private money was gone, and uh, and they didn't realize that they faced this being uh, eviction uh, because the facility didn't want to take state Medicaid. Um, So uh, you can, uh, I have talked to people who have negotiated up front and um, removed any mention of that, uh, that they can be evicted for being on Medicaid from the contract going in up front. Uh, so, but it's definitely a conversation that people need to have with the facility up front, and they need to understand and ask and find out what will happen when the private money runs out. It's it's a real trap, right? And and often, you know, when a loved one is in need of this type of facility, it it come can come very quickly, and you you find it difficult with all the other things of you know to organize in a life in in transformation. There, uh, going through a thick, dense contract is is another chore. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And these things can be, you know, an inch or two thick. Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's other booby traps in these contracts too, because, uh, and, you know, you're right, like you have someone discharged from a hospital and you have like literally an afternoon to figure out where to put them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but the other booby traps are uh, the escalating costs as uh, the care needs increase. 
So, um, you know, there's a base rate for the room and base level of care, but then there's tiers. And so as you, as you become sicker and need more care in an assisted living facility, they charge you more money. That's not always fully disclosed or it's not disclosed exactly how that works. It's really an important conversation to have up front during the contract talk and before you, when you're signing that thing to understand how much more is it going to cost for, you know, an additional medication administration? How much is it going to cost to eat in my room as opposed to eating in the dining room? How much is it going to cost for uh, three showers a week when um, once I can't shower myself? Um, uh, how much is it going to cost uh, to uh, have a, an extra caregiver come uh, because um, I need someone to sit with me, you know, for a longer period of time per the day? All that stuff needs to be factored in by families um, before they move in. And, you know, it's a good idea to kind of, I know it's hard, you know, most people procrastinate, I do too, but uh, if you see this on the horizon that, you know, in this, you know, in the upcoming year or so, you might need long-term care for your parent, it's a really good idea to start figuring some of these stuff out early if you can. Yeah, and you do have, as I mentioned, companion pieces to this main investigation of the Washington Post here, that guidance uh, for those seeking assisted living in nursing home facilities. Any, uh, we can't go into all the details, any major parts of that that uh, you want to mention before we end our conversation in about five minutes? Recommendations? Well, I think the other, yeah, the other, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind when you're shopping for these facilities is, you know, what the experts in the field will say is, uh, you know, uh, family members and consumers, you shouldn't be dazzled by the really fine appointments and the sh they call it the chandelier effect of assisted living. You know, you'll see beautiful grand pianos and nice couches and, mm. you know, game rooms and, and movie theaters. And, uh, but what r really counts is the staffing level, the qualifications of the staff, uh, how uh, often they're um, checking in on residents, um, the quality of the food, uh, you know, um, so, the, you know, uh, the point is to really, really get in and, and speak to the staff and speak to, you know, the administrators and ask them, you know, how how long has have the has your average staffer worked here? And if they say, well, you know, if it's less than six months, you probably should find another place. Yeah, there is notable turnover in a lot of these areas and health care providers. Uh, low low paid healthcare providers, you know, choose under stressful conditions with low pay to abandon these places. Hence, you have the the high turnover. Yeah, exactly. And so, and someone with dementia, um, a, a familiar face, a kind touch, uh, someone who knows them and knows their history is so important. And unfortunately, with when you have that high turnover, and I've spoke with so many families who say you know, there was always a different caregiver coming in and taking care of my mom and she never know, knew who it was. Yeah. And she, you know, and for someone, for someone who has trouble remembering faces anyway, uh, that can be really distressing. Um, so, uh, it is, uh, you know, it's just not good dementia care in the United States in a lot of cases. And there are places that provide good dementia care. Um, and you have, but you have to really hunt them down. I wonder what has been notable reaction to this investigation. Um, what uh, have you heard back here that's notable to you and the team? Uh, well, we're uh, you know expecting um, some uh, various forums of uh, you know there might be some hearings and some other things upcoming. They can't really talk about, uh, but um, 
you know, in states and uh, this attention uh, is really starting to uh, increase for um, ombudsmen and other advocates to put pressure on their state legislatures. Um, uh, you know, it's putting more pressure on uh, the, the debate about how to uh, finance uh, long-term care in America. Uh, you know, one of the root causes of bad long-term care in our country is the lack of any kind of comprehensive long-term care insurance. Uh, it's a real problem with the uh, baby boomer generation now aging in and uh, approaching, um, you know, getting into actually becoming 75 to 80 and 85 and uh, needing this care. Uh, and it's coming to the fore ever more. Um, we have received uh, a deluge of, uh, of, of individual anecdotes from readers, a huge, uh, we're finding out about more deaths that we didn't know about. Um, uh, we have uh, certain lawmakers um, talking about having hearings and, and studying the issue further. Uh, so it does, it is having an impact um, and beyond what uh, just state borders. And so um, uh, we expect to be covering this a lot more in 2024. Yeah. And we're linking to your reporting on our IPR website uh, in the final minute. I know you have to go. You have an appointment. But uh, tell us, uh, after all of this investigation, do you see uh, things that in our political environment we think people could agree on here that would um, not solve the situation but improve it from what it is in most states today? Yeah, I really think so. I mean, you know, the industry, the long-term care industry uh, and assisted living operators have really powerful state-by-state lobbies, uh, but um, they are willing to talk and negotiate uh, around things like transparency and training requirements. Um, They, you know, they have uh, acceded to uh, minimal training requirements in Colorado and Texas uh, recently. uh, they had to accept a uh, training requirement in New Hampshire recently. So there are some signs of, uh, you know, incremental improvement in states. Um, but uh, I would say around training and transparency are probably uh, the places where they don't cost too much money and uh, they, uh, they're not that hard to do. So I think that um, uh, you'll see some improvement along those lines. And, you know, that's where the debate really is going to happen. You put Iowa in the middle of the pack quickly before we say goodbye. Uh, who, which state stands out as a, a good example, a model perhaps? Well, interestingly, you know, uh, what we found when we did our state-by-state review is that um, uh, it's, it doesn't really fall to, uh, along red state, blue state lines like you might expect. Like you would think, okay, de- uh, you know, there's more regulation in, in blue states. That's actually not the case. Alabama has... Uh, checks the box on all three of our criteria from training and staff ratios to transparency. Um, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, uh, flunk. Um, no transparency, uh, uh, you know, minimal requirements. Um, you know, uh, it's really buyer beware uh, across the country for these types of facilities. But in those states, you're, you're really flying blind. Christopher Rowland, Washington Post business reporter. Do check out uh, this recent investigation at the Washington Post. uh, Neglect for patients with dementia at assisted living facilities. A lot of uh, effort. uh, Well worth it. Uh, Christopher uh, Rowland, congratulations to you and your team for this uh, important reporting. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I really appreciate you having me on. Okay.
And uh, once again, we'll link to the reporting on our website uh, at IPR.org. There's still a very large law enforcement presence in the small town of Perry. Uh, This afternoon, after a shooting this morning at the Perry High School, law enforcement officials say there was an active shooter at Perry High School uh, just after 7.30 this morning before classes started. They're confirming multiple injuries but would not say how many people were injured or identify them as students or faculty. Um, And uh, a coordinated statement from the Des Moines Hospitals confirms multiple patients being treated at Iowa Methodist Medical Center and Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center. Law enforcement also says there is though no longer a threat. The community is safe, but would not confirm the status of the shooter, although they did confirm that person has been identified. The AP reporting that the shooter has died. Uh, Natalie Krebs, we heard earlier in the program, on the scene, uh, reporting on the mood in Perry. Very, very sad there. Uh, People around the community crying in shock that something like this could happen. Today, our program produced by Caitlin Troutman, but really a team effort as we get you that uh, breaking news. And of course, you can follow uh, the uh, uh, news coverage on that tragedy in Perry as the day progresses. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.